Hello, everyone, and welcome to this special edition of Employment Matters, brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm your host, Shemaine Amin. Along with bringing you updates and critical events happening around the world, we are also fortunate to have the chance to dial in our local ELA lawyers that practice on the ground in these jurisdictions and are working daily to keep their local clients moving through these difficult times. On the program, we span the globe and have received updates on critical issues from ELA members in the region. Today, we're going to be chatting with one of our members in Uganda. We are pleased to be joined by Ernest Sembatia, partner at Max Advocates, a member of the Africa Legal Network, which is an alliance of leading corporate law firms in 15 key African jurisdictions. Welcome to the program, Ernest. How are you doing today? Thank you very much, Jermaine. I'm doing all too well in spite of what is happening, not only in the world, but also in Uganda. But on the whole, I'm doing well, and I'm glad to be making a presentation on this podcast. Excellent, Ernest. We're looking forward to chatting with you today in a little more detail. And I guess to get a little update on you know, what's transpired over the last couple of months, we'd be happy for you to share with us what Uganda's recent experience has been with COVID-19. The COVID-19 pandemic has had an adverse effect on um, the world economy, and uh, Uganda's economy is no exception. The pandemic has led to the introduction of concepts which are previously unknown or unused, such as social distancing, which going forward are going to redefine how we function in our places of work and in our private spaces. Employers typically find themselves at crossroads in trying to strike a balance between economic and legal considerations on the one hand, and the moral and empathetic obligations they owe to their employees on the other hand. Employers have either had to lay off staff due to the impact of the pandemic um, on their bottom lines. This has no doubt led to an increase in the unemployment and the incidental social effects. For example, especially during the the total lockdown, the the total countrywide lockdown, there were increased incidences of of gender-based violence. And others of uh, other employers have had to introduce working in shifts or working in rotations. And also due to the pandemic, the education calendar had to be revised. This has affected students who have not been going to school for close to a year. Obviously, even the education space, there, the, 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 the employment issues, um, the teachers, the support staff who have been affected because of that. But the country is um, gradually picking up uh, with economic activity almost back to normal almost back to normal to the pre-COVID times, save for certain areas, certain sectors, for example, bars, nightclubs, and limited number of permitted uh, funds in sports activities. During the total lockdown, there was a nationwide curfew, which was imposed from the hours of 7 p.m. to 5.30 a.m., but now they've been uh, revised to from 9 p.m. to 5.30 a.m. This still subsists. On the social front, wearing of masks, although mandatory, is hardly complied with, especially in the lower levels of society. Surprisingly, however, um, the rate of infections, as reported by the state, have drastically gone down. That, in summary, is the Uganda's the Ugandan COVID experience. However, since uh, COVID is a new disease, the real effects cannot be said to be complete. They will unfold as, as, as time goes by. Absolutely. And and I think that that's a really interesting update. And and we're glad to hear that things are looking promising and and slightly improved as compared to, you know, what they were a couple of months ago. And and that's part of the challenge of dealing with such a dynamic 
situation because the response measures also are continually evolving and, and adapting. And in, on that front, are there any specific measures that have been put in place by the government of Uganda to support, say, for instance, private businesses that have battled a particularly tough time during the pandemic? Yes, the government has put in place uh, measures which principally benefit private businesses which have been impacted by the pandemic. For example, the government has, has delayed the date of payment of income tax by one month. Um, refunds of uh, value-added tax have been, have been sped up in relation to finance facilities taken out of uh, banks. The central bank issued guidelines uh, in relation to restructuring of existing facilities giving a moratorium of up to 12 months. The 12 months run out had recently, the guidelines were refreshed for an additional, for a longer period. So the private sector players will have an additional period within which they'll enjoy the moratorium. Now, government has also banned, and, and this ban still is still in place, eviction of tenants during the lockdown relief, basically until such time as things seemingly get back to, to, to normal. There's also a ban on increase of prices for essential commodities, although this ban is more on paper than in reality, because the price of essential commodities increase every now and then. During the total lockdown, there was a free supply of food to low-income earners in, in urban and semi-urban areas, and, and this gave a boost to the agricultural and processing sector during that period. Great insights, Ernest, on the raft of measures that the government has put in place to you know, help alleviate some of the challenges that the pandemic has brought to various pockets of, of society. I think one of the points that perhaps our listeners would be keen to understand better is what are the legal obligations specifically on employers during the COVID-19 pandemic in, in Uganda? The fundamental legal obligation of an employer to an employee is the obligation to provide work. This obligation continued during the lockdown and continues even now, post-total post, uh, lockdown, unless the, the contract is uh, frustrated or terminated. Many employers actually continued meeting this obligation with some changes. The changes including uh, working from home, uh, revised working hours, working in shifts, without necessarily affecting the paycheck, the monthly paycheck of the employees. Employers are required to comply with all terms of the service contract unless varied by mutual consent. Under our laws, any variation, any variation of the contract needs to be with the consent of the employee. Now, what typically happened during the, the lockdown, and you know, it carried on even to date, was that employees requested employers to consent to lesser hours of work, working from home, etc. There are very few instances of cut down salaries. It was just, it came down to where to work and how many hours to work. One of the other obligations of the employer is to provide a healthy and safe working environment to employees to prevent the spread of COVID-19. We did have the enactment of the COVID-19 rules, which among others uh, set out some of these obligations. By and large, many employers complied with them especially the corporates. When it came to you know, the non-formal sector, compliance was more in default, especially now. Now there seems to be a laxity in, uh, in complying with these health and safety policies as required by the law. But well, um, that, that's how matters stand. 
employers also have a right, I mean, are also obligated by law not to discriminate on grounds of COVID-19. If an employer finds that an employee is COVID-19 positive, that cannot be a basis for termination. This is both in the, in the COVID rules as well as, as well as the Employment Act, which generally speaks about uh, non-discrimination on grounds of race and et cetera. Now, the employer is also required to report any cases of sick employees or employees suspected to be COVID-19 positive to the local authorities in accordance with the provisions of the Public Health Act. We tend to be, in Uganda, we tend to be very private when it comes to, to health issues. So what, has, what we've observed is that typically, even when an employee is suspected of being COVID-19 positive, employers would rather handle the issue privately as opposed to alarming the rest of the workforce. It will be handled privately and the employee will be given the relevant support. On that point, Ernest, it's a really delicate balance there because we have you know, similar obligations in, in Tanzania as well. And I think there are many jurisdictions like ours around the world. And it's it's sort of tough to find that balance between managing the confidentiality of the employee that you know either is suspected of being positive or is positive and the health and safety of the other employees and their right to have access to that information. Uh, and I don't know if that's a specific challenge that's arisen in the Ugandan context, where if a matter is handled privately, would there be grounds for you know, other employees to claim that they had a right to have been informed that they may have been potentially exposed by being in a shared workplace? That is a live challenge. And what has typically been happening is that when an employee is suspected of being, you know, infected with COVID, the matter is handled confidentially. But what happens is that the employee is requested to disclose who their possible contacts are within the workplace. Now, those contacts, at least in, in matters where we've been consulted, and those contacts have also been contacted confidentially without disclosing who the employee is. And most of these contacts have all been subjected to COVID tests. The moment you found negative, that's where it ends. That's where it ends, meaning that the employer has notified you that there's a possibility that you were contact. The employer has met the costs of the COVID test. And if you're told you've been, you've been found negative, then there would be no basis for you to make a complaint in relation to that issue. And at the same time, the identity of, of the employee who is positive has also been kept confidentially. Absolutely, that, that makes sense. And it seems as though a number of employers have tried to avoid having to go down this road of contact tracing, et cetera. As you mentioned, it's also a resource-intensive exercise and very time-consuming and have resorted to increasing the access for people to work from home. And I'm just curious to know in Uganda, what is the practicality and sustainability of the work-from-home concept? Is it something that you think has been embraced in certain sectors and certain lines of work over the course of the last year? Or do you find that it's still a country that leans heavily towards having the traditional setup where people are, are physically in their offices from morning to evening? Obviously, I suppose, like in many other places, change, especially this kind of drastic change, 
takes a little bit of time to be absorbed and accepted by, uh, by the people it affects. Uganda's population is a population of 43 million, of which 22 million say to be in employment. The dynamics of working from home are not that easy in Uganda. I'm not so sure what the story is elsewhere, but from the literature available, it's not been easy elsewhere too. Now, we do have the mind shift issue of someone having to work from home. It has its peculiar limitations. One, we have issues of infrastructure, equipment which is necessary for someone to effectively work from home, things like internet, access to computers from home. Many people's home environments are not that suitable for working from home. There are people who live, who don't have that space to effectively be productive at home. People with young families, family which knows that the moment you're home, that's our time. The fact that pupils and students are not going to school also poses a challenge. It would be different if you're alone at home and the children are away, away from home, but you're all locked up in the same space. That prevents optimum productivity. Then, of course, there are many, many of the of employees are employed in the informal sector where working from home is literally impossible. We have issues of, of, of say, people who work in the agriculture sector. They cannot be effective when working from home. In fact, how do you transport a farm home? You can only work on a farm when you're at a farm. People who are working in, say, the financial sector, you can only, there's no bank which can permit you to, say, disburse monies um, from home. There has been an upside. The uptake of the internet has been high, but even at its highest, it has limitations. It's never been, uh, our internet has never been the best. It also comes with a colossal expense. Those are some of the challenges which come with working from home. Thanks, Ernest. I think we, we share a number of those limitations in Tanzania as well, and particularly on points like infrastructure and having you know a large segment of the population also engaged in the informal sector where you know being able to just plug in a laptop and get on the internet and check your emails is not actually what constitutes work for a lot of employees so it, it could, remains to be seen how firms will continue adapting in the coming months and some i think have already taken steps to change their operating models uh, others are looking to find somewhat of a balance between staff that are able to work from home and are able to do so efficiently versus those that would still need to come in to, to fulfill their duties. So, so very interesting insights there. And you, know, you had mentioned earlier in our conversation about the fact that employee consent and consultation is required before changes are made. For instance, to the, to the terms of employment, I would expect that you probably had similar guidelines with regard to businesses that were being restructured as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. And just curious to know a little bit more about the procedures that employers have been required to follow before they've affected uh, restructurings in their businesses? In relation to the procedures which are prerequisites to, to restructure, there's been no change between the pre-COVID and the COVID procedures. So we, we still fall back onto what is set out in our Employment Act. The Act provides for, say, termination with justifiable cause. In fact, if no justifiable cause exists, and someone is terminated, that's the basis for a finding of unlawful, unlawful termination. 
And our industrial court is a very employee-friendly court. So it, it tends to bend over backwards to find in favor of the employees, meaning that employers, especially when, when handling matters to do with COVID, COVID-related restructures, they have to be extra careful. The Employment Act allows for termination on the basis of economic, a technological or structural nature. Now, typically because the COVID pandemic has led to, you know, has hit, led to companies' bottom lines being affected, that can, can actually be classified as an economic basis for, for considering a restructure. Our industrial court has held that before a restructure is undertaken, employees must be given adequate notice and must be aware of the imminent loss of employment. I suppose that's the position even in other jurisdictions. For restructures, the employee's consent is not, is not mandatory and it, it's only notification that's required, not seeking of the employee's consent. Now, upon the consent being given, the, the law requires the employer to notify the commissioner for labor where the restructure is going to affect 10 or more employees in a period of three months. It goes without saying that on a proper interpretation of our laws, if the number of employees is less than 10, um, there is no requirement to notify the Labor Commissioner. I should emphasize that the legal requirement is notifying the Commissioner. It's not seeking the Commissioner's consent. After notifying the Commissioner, it goes on to the next step of issuing the, the letters of termination, clearly indicating the reason of, of termination being a restructure. Certainly, upon a restructure being made, um, there are certain benefits which are due to the employees. Any benefits due to them are supposed to be computed and paid out to them at the time of, of bringing an end to the relationship. Very similar to, to the way that restructurings work in Tanzania as well on the point about not requiring consent. But of course, having that mutual agreement tends to improve the employer's position just in case there is an action that is pursued after the restructuring is carried out. And Ernest, in closing, I think looking back at a one-year cycle, you know, March 2020 was when, you know, the East African region started recording its first case. I remember in Tanzania, it was March 16th, which is tomorrow. And, you know, a year later, we're looking at the global landscape and the conversation now is really shifting towards vaccines access to vaccines, deployment of vaccines, and on the employment front, just curious, I mean, I know it's a little bit early in that sense, but just curious to get your views on, you know, what you foresee in the next couple of months in Uganda, in terms of, you know, employees potentially being, you know, required, for instance, by their employers to be vaccinated, where you see the priorities lying uh, and any other issues that you may want to raise on this point before we wrap up for today. Now, Uganda embarked on um, mass vaccinations last week, starting with frontline health workers. It actually commenced on, on the Wednesday, the 10th of, of March. And the vaccine we're using, the AstraZeneca vaccine, which received the week before last. Now, sadly, from news around the world, a number of European countries have suspended use of this vaccine. Obviously, that brings certain, raises certain concerns in Uganda of the appropriateness of that vaccine in Uganda. Looking at what has been, especially on social media, going back and forth, there is a lot of suspicion as to 
the efficacy of this vaccine and whether or not people should actually go ahead and, and subject themselves to the vaccine. In that space, we wait to see what's going to happen. Yesterday, the president delivered an address to the nation and in his address, he stated that he's not taken, he's not subjected himself to the vaccine. He's waiting to see which vaccine is more suitable. Obviously, a pronouncement such as his at that level kind of undermines the, the vaccination campaign. We've been seeing leaders around the world leading from the front, even when subsequently vaccination, especially using AstraZeneca, was suspended. Leaders actually subjected themselves to, to, the, to the process, the campaign, and, and that gave some kind of comfort to, to the population. Sadly, if we're to continue using the AstraZeneca vaccine, I strongly believe that it's not going to get as much traction it would have gotten hadn't uh, the president stated as he did. But we wait to see how that is going to be handled. The intention is to give it to people who are perceived to be high-risk people, including health workers, security personnel, and teachers, and people who have been handy and the front line in handling of the pandemic. Also, people, the elderly, are also going to be considered first in line together with the others for, for vaccination. Now, we hope that with increased numbers getting vaccinated, the economic space is going to be fully opened up. For now, sports activities, bars and nightclubs, um, the ban continues on them. Sports activities, um, a limited number of funds are permitted. But hopefully, with large numbers of people getting vaccinated, the economy will fully pick up from where it was before. And uh, we are hoping that the employment numbers will go down and life will go back to semblance of normalcy. This has been a really interesting discussion, Ernest. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Always nice to hear from you know, our practitioners on the ground. And of course, with you being our neighbors in Uganda, that perspective is a good one. If you'd like to connect with Ernest or any of our lawyers around the world, please search for them on the ELA website at ela.law by going to the Find a Lawyer widget in the center of the page, where you can sign up to receive invitations to our upcoming webinars, download white papers, and on-demand content from our online library, or access the ELA's exclusive Global Employer Handbook. You've been listening to Employment Matters, a podcast brought to you by the Employment Law Alliance, the world's largest network of labor and employment lawyers from the best law firms around the globe. I'm Shemaine Amin, and thanks for listening.